my other piece of technology, my recording for uh, the sermon. A prophet has no honor in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Maybe you've experienced this. I'm sitting here in my own household as a prophet, um, and I don't know what they're thinking. Um, but, but, you know, when we go away to college or maybe after joining the military and coming home or maybe after we get our first job and we get married, have children, we come home, um, those things change us and we come home and we're no longer who we once were. Uh, but the people that knew us back home and we enter in still see us as that little girl or little boy. Maybe they still love you, I don't know, but, but they don't necessarily know you. And oftentimes there isn't that kind of respect. Maybe you've experienced something like this. I think most of us, to a degree, as we've grown up, have experienced something like this. People uh, come around to know uh, the grown-up you eventually. At least that's my experience. Like If you spend enough time, they, they start to, to, to reshape how they think about you. But there's that awkward transition point, that period of time. Um, though I would say watch out for birthdays and family gatherings because that's when all the embarrassing stories usually come out and you revert back to your childhood. But anyway, we've all experienced this to a degree. And amazingly, Jesus himself experienced this. He experienced that lack of honor, the disregard for who he had shown himself to be. But the difference between Jesus' experience and our experience is that we likely came home thinking unrealistically about ourselves um, and how much we'd grown. Um, In many ways, we are the same person. Uh, We have the same foibles. Jesus, on the other hand, came home teaching with authority in the synagogue. He came home as not just a little bit older and a little bit wiser Jesus, But he came home preaching the coming of the kingdom of God and he was calling his friends and family to repent and believe. He came home not as their son or brother, but as their Lord. And this was too much. They wanted a domesticated Jesus. A Jesus who was like them in every way. And here's the thing. Christ uh, does come to us. And is like us in every way. He, he comes in humility. He grows up and he learns to work with his hands. He, he shares our infirmities, our sorrows, our, our humanity. But he also comes to us as the Lord of glory as well. He comes without foibles and without sin. He comes to us as a powerful king who brings healing and salvation, calling us to repent and believe in him, to follow him, to fall at his feet and to worship him. And what do we do when we're confronted with this Jesus? I think that we might be sometimes tempted to domesticate him as well, to take him down a notch or two. Friends, He calls you and I to repent and believe and follow him because he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the powerful Savior who provides all that we need. And as we wrestle together with who Jesus is, there are two roads, the path of unbelief and the road of repentance 
and faith. The road of putting ourselves up as greater than Jesus and the path that leads to Jesus' feet. Come, repent, and believe in the wondrous Lord who provides all that we need. We're going to look at this idea, this call to repentance and faith, and to see this wondrous Lord who provides uh, in three parts. And the first part is we're going to look at the offensiveness of Jesus, the offensiveness of Jesus. We're told that Jesus went from there to his hometown. That's what the text says in verse one. He went from there. Where did he go from? Well, he went from Jairus's house. You remember it was in Jairus's house that he raised a little girl from the dead. And just before that, when he was going to Jairus's house in this town of Capernaum, uh, he there were great crowds that were pressed around him. And a woman came who had been bleeding for 12 years and he healed her as well. This is where he was coming from. And he went from there to Nazareth, the town where he grew up. And he was known there, right? That's, that's how it is in your hometown, especially a small town. And he was known for his common carpentry skills. Um, I, I um, am a dabbler in carpentry and woodworking. I am building a table currently um, and I'm enjoying it. It's something that I can do in this period of time. Um, but Jesus was a professional car- carpenter, a journeyman. He, he likely grew up under his father's tutelage and came into his own. The text says that um, he was the carpenter, the son of Mary. Um, and so that's how he was known. And he went into the synagogue to teach. Now, it wasn't uncommon to have a guest teacher stand up and teach. If a prominent teacher came into town, they would have them stand up and, and share something from God's word. Now, while they might not have understood who Jesus really was, right? We'll, we'll see that throughout the text. They understood that he had a reputation as a teacher and as a healer, as one who worked miracles. Um, the first time that I had to preach, opportunity that I had to preach in my home church, I can say that there was a little curiosity, right? There was curiosity and surprise when I started talking as if, they expected a little boy to come up. Now, now maybe they didn't express that audibly, but that was the, the feeling that I got when I when I stood up in my home church for the first time. My guess is that there was quite a bit of curiosity when Jesus stood up to speak at the synagogue. But what the text says is that many who heard him were astonished. And they were not astonished that he spoke as a grown man. And they were not astonished that he was a teacher, per se. They were astonished because what he spoke is as one who had authority. He spoke as one who spoke the very word of God. If we go back to the very first chapter of Mark, uh, we see the same exact language of astonishment at his teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. There in chapter 1, verse 22, uh, we are given the reason for their astonishment. It was because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And I I think it's safe to assume a similar situation here. Jesus was sharing with his fellow Nazarenes the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and he was calling them to repent and believe. And we know this also from the very first chapter uh, of of Mark. In chapter 1, verse 14, we get a summary of uh, the ministry, his early ministry in Galilee. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled 
and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But the astonishment in Capernaum is different than the astonishment here in Nazareth. There, astonishment led to his fame spreading throughout Galilee. And we know that he could barely go anywhere without large crowds gathering around him, surrounding him. But here in Nazareth, their astonishment is really incredulity. Incredulity. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now you listen to those questions, you can hear the subtext. Where did this man, this son of Joseph and Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his two sisters were sitting right here, where did he get these things? Where did he get them? Where did he get these ideas that are above his pay grade, above his position, above his status in life? And what is this wisdom given to him? For he surely isn't bright enough to come up with this on his own. How does he speak with such authority? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? His hands, his calloused workman hands. How is he able to do such mighty works? Can you hear the incredulity? Can you hear how they, they can't bear the thought of Jesus, the, the carpenter, the son of Mary? And, and, and you have to imagine that, that there was a rumor flying around Jesus' birth, right? That, that had come out at some point, maybe. That, that this birth was illegitimate to begin with. It was very uncommon that they would re- refer to Mary um, and not to Joseph here as the son of Mary. And, and there's some commentators who seem to indicate that maybe, just maybe, um, they brought her up as, as pointing to, in some way, the fact that he may have been illegitimate. Of course, he was born and conceived by the Holy Spirit. But if the Nazarenes are, you know, it's said elsewhere in Scripture that, you know, does anything good come from Nazareth? And here the Nazarenes are looking down on Jesus. It's the lowest of the low. But notice something else here in the text. We see their incredulity. But notice this. They don't deny the teaching. They They don't say anything about whether what he said was true or not true, wise or not wise. In fact, they seem to indicate that it is wisdom. And, and notice, too, that they don't deny the power of Jesus. They don't, they don't deny the miracles that have happened. No, instead, they reject the idea of Jesus altogether. And I think there's something here for us to consider. At the root of the issue is the idea that Jesus would exert power and authority. The offensiveness of Jesus is that he calls us to repent and believe, to cast ourselves at his feet, to put ourselves in his care. The offense is not that he can teach. It's not even that he has power or that he can heal. The offense is that Jesus is Lord. That's the offense. But there's more to it. I think there's more to it. It's not only that he's Lord, but that he's a humble Lord. That he's like us in every way. That he came and was born like us and he was from ordinary stock. 
I think it's, it's the combination of this complete ordinariness and his complete power and authority that's offensive. This idea that he's both of those things. Maybe for the Nazarenes, if Jesus had come from Jerusalem, if he had come as a high priest with an entourage of scribes and Pharisees, if he'd come as a true king riding a war horse, then, then maybe, though I'm doubtful, but maybe they would have heeded him. They would have listened to him. But he came to them as one of their own. Like them, in every way, ordinary, yet full of wisdom, power, and authority from heaven. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. What about you? What about you? To call Jesus Lord means that you no longer are ruler of your own life. It means that his word is authoritative. And not not just some of it, not just the bits that we like, but all of it. And he calls us, calls you and I to repent and to believe. Friends, don't stand before our humble Lord with incredulity. Don't try to domesticate him to make him less. You can't. Come, bow before our humble king. Jesus offends these Nazarenes with his seeming presumption. Uh, and I think there is a temptation for us to find Jesus offensive because we don't want to bow our knee. But there's also uh, an offensiveness to their unbelief. And this is my second point, the offensiveness of unbelief. Jesus is deeply moved by the unbelief of his fellow Nazarenes. And he responds to their unbelief in three ways. First, he responds with this common proverb, a prophet Without, has no honor in his hometown. Why would he say this to them? It, what I mean is, that's the kind of proverb that we often say once we've been home and we go back to our friends and uh, we are regaling them with how we were treated like a child, etc. And then you might say to them, oh, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So it, it also might be the sort of thing you say to yourself, right? Uh, to give you comfort. Well, whatever. They don't, they just know me as little Robbie Gray, right? They don't know me now. You know, that's the kind of thing that we'll do. We'll tell ourselves. That's the kind of proverb you might say to your own self to bring you comfort. But in saying it to his family and fellow townsfolk, he is indicting them. He's indicting them. It reminds me of one of the strangest and most disturbing stories in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha the prophet, en route to Bethel, is confronted by a jeering crowd of boys. And the strangest part, well, no, there's lots of strange parts to it, but, you know, here is the prophet Elisha, the mouthpiece of God. He's performed wondrous miracles. He is um, one calling the people to faith and repentance. And he's going up to Bethel, the house of God. Um, and here comes a group of boys, many boys. And they come and they jeer him and they say, go up, you bald head. Now, this is a great one. If you are bald, you can quote this scripture. You can tell this scripture uh, to those that make fun of you for being bald. Because 
after he gets jeered at, it's a serious thing. It's not a, a little thing. Here was the mouthpiece of God that they were jeering at, that they were mocking and making fun of and telling to leave. And what does Elisha do? He turns around and curses them in the name of the Lord. And immediately, two she-bears come out of the woods and maul the boys. That's disturbing. Just even me saying those words is disturbing. It's a disturbing scene. But there's a grave warning embedded in it. Elisha was a prophet of the living God. And Jesus is indicting them that they are dishonoring the prophet here. The prophet par excellence. The very word of God incarnate. The one who speaks with the authority of heaven. He was indicting them. The second way that Jesus responds is by doing very little. That's kind of an interesting thing. The text says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, uh, up front, I have to say, this is, this is not saying that he did not have the power to heal. Rather, it is saying something about the lack of faith and the unbelief in Nazareth. Again, I want to be really cautious here. Um, there are uh, many who've taken this type of a text and have argued that the Lord doesn't heal our infirmities because we haven't mustered up enough faith. That we haven't prayed hard enough or long enough or said the right words in the right order or something like that. Kind of, we got to work up our faith to get it to a certain level and then after that level, Jesus heals. That's not what the text is getting at here. And yet the Lord here doesn't willingly reveal his power and glory in the face of unbelief. Just as we've seen throughout Mark, how Jesus often conceals his identity to those who reject him and reveals it to those who receive him. So it is here with the manifestation of his power. It's why in both the case of the woman who is bleeding and Jairus' daughter, these two, Jairus and this woman, are commended for their faith, for their belief. He graciously reveals himself to those people. Yet to those who would stubbornly refuse to believe, even in the face of authoritative teaching and in the face of miracles and evidence that he has power, he doesn't give them any more. He doesn't reveal any more. I think it's why he instructs his disciples in the next section to go to the house or to the town and to go into the house. And um, if they don't listen to you, he calls them to shake the dust, shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against that household for their unbelief, for their willingness, uh, their unwillingness to believe in Jesus. It was a sign of judgment. So it is here, the unwillingness of the Lord to display his power in the face of unbelief was a sign of his judgment. And I think there is a warning to us here. God's mercy and God's grace are unmerited and free. Yet they are not our right or our privilege. If we reject the authority and lordship of Christ, we cannot presume to be beneficiaries of his grace. Can't presume it. The third response that we see here was shock. Shock. Uh, Jesus is deeply moved by the unbelief of his people. The text says, and he marveled. Because of their unbelief. Now, this may surprise you a little bit. Why did he marvel? 
I mean, didn't Jesus know this was the nature of rebellious humanity? Didn't he know that that he would be despised and rejected? Didn't he know that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with shame? After all, he is the Lord. He is the sovereign king. Doesn't he know these things about the people he's going to save? Yes, yes, he knew. But now he'd experienced it. He felt it. He felt the rejection. And it wasn't simply that he felt the rejection for himself, though I think he did feel it for himself, because after all, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, deserving all honor and glory, the one to whom every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. So in that sense, he had every right to receive faith and belief. Um, And so he certainly felt it for himself, but I think he also felt it for them. Can you imagine the pain and sorrow and grief that must have been for Jesus to watch as his friends and as his family members turned their back on the only way of salvation? I know that for some of you, you know that pain. You know that grief. You know that sorrow. And we can find comfort here knowing that our Lord knows the same sorrow and grief. He knows the longing and the heartache. There is an offensiveness to unbelief, but there's also a deep sadness that goes along with it. But this brings me to my final point and conclusion. The provision and power of Jesus. There are two small glimmers of hope in Nazareth. Two little small hope, uh, glimmers of hope. The first is that some were healed. Some were healed. And you'll notice that at the beginning I said that there wasn't much. He didn't do much, but he did some. Some witnessed the power and provision of God. Some believed. It wasn't a wholesale rejection by the town of Nazareth. Not only that, but Jesus continued to teach in the surrounding villages. People in the community continued to hear the good news. And who knows what happened after the cross and after the resurrection? Who knows what gospel seeds were planted and what fruit was born? And here's the most glorious truth of all. Jesus became like us in every way, humbled himself, was despised and rejected by men. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But it was in the inscrutable wisdom of God that the very means of God's salvation was through his rejection. It's through the crucifixion. When the whole community gathered round and yelled, crucify him. It was in that very moment that the Lord of glory was coming to save his people. People that turned their back on him. People that, that rejected him, that looked down on him, that refused to bow before him. He came and he was crucified for them. So that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The Lord Jesus provided salvation for us through his rejection. Finally, our text this morning, we see the provision and power of Jesus in the sending out of these 12. And this is just very briefly going to touch on this. 
we see here an interesting lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples as he uh, continues to prepare them to bear witness uh, about him. They were to take nothing, pretty much. They were to take, take a staff, they were to have some sandals and a tunic, and that was it. No food, no money, no extra tunic, no extra coat. Now, I need to point out that this is part of their training. It was not their commissioning. That happens later. They were sent out after the resurrection. In other words, I think it would be a terrible idea to send out our missionaries onto the field with nothing but a staff and some shoes and a coat. Uh, that would be terrible. But what is he teaching them? What is, it, what is he teaching his disciples? I think he wants them to know as they went out that he was teaching them that the Lord Jesus Christ is their provider. The power, the authority, the provision for life itself depended and was derived from Jesus. It is God alone who provides and who saves. In other words, he was teaching his disciples to believe, to trust. Just as he was calling on the Nazarenes to repent and believe, he is telling his disciples to repent and believe. It's so easy for us to want our trust, to trust ourselves, to domesticate Jesus, to take, to take the lordship peace on our own shoulders, to put ourselves as the one who provides. And, and this, uh, I think the Lord is doing something in the world right now, right? He's doing something. Even now as we gather apart from each other without a place to meet, without regular fellowship, without the fear of getting deathly ill, or with the fear of getting deathly ill, with the economies of the world coming to a screeching halt, as we are being stripped of our self-reliance, the Lord is calling us to trust, to repent and believe, to trust in His provision for life, for, for our daily bread, but, but more than that, not just food and shelter and health, but for our eternal life. The disciples went out and they cast out demons and they healed the sick. They proclaimed good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus, the humble Lord, has come. That he was rejected and crucified, died and buried. That he rose again from the dead. And he's coming again to powerfully provide for us all that we need. Eternal life. Life with him. Under his sovereign lordship. Friends, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and repent and believe in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your grace to us. We thank you that you do provide all that we need. Lord, keep our hearts from unbelief. Lord, help us to see you as both like us in every way, and yet as the glorious Lord without sin, the one who came and saved us. Help us to cast ourselves at your feet, trust in your provision for life. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We just pray your blessing on us as your people. Be merciful to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in about uh, 25 minutes... Um, I'm going to go ahead and open up sermon discussion. In the meantime, I want to encourage you all uh, to stick around if you want. Grab some food, stick around and chat, talk with one another. 
this is an opportunity for us to fellowship, even if it's through through a chat session. Um, and uh, hopefully we can encourage one another. So I'm going to take a little break and I'll see you guys in about 25 minutes. Thank you. 